This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Dawn Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity and Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. Today, we get things moving with a gifted director and choreographer who is best known for her energetic musicals, The Producers, Crazy For You, Contact, and The Scottsboro Boys. She has collaborated with the New York City Ballet, the Martha Graham Dance Company, and the Metropolitan Opera. Needless to say, awards have a gravitational pull to this extraordinary storyteller who's able to visualize movement and translate it into joyous theatrical experiences for audiences worldwide. Join me as the curtain rises on my creative conversation with five-time Tony Award winner, Susan Stroman. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. La, 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 la. Hey, Stro. Hello. 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 I am happy to be here. Thank you. That was a lovely introduction. I have to slip you 20 bucks. I felt like it needed some kind of opening number <laughs> to have a person like you. I, I, I wanted to count down five, <laughs> six, seven, eight, and then boom, yeah. we're in. Yes, very good. But uh, the first thing, I'm impressed by the amount of work that you've done, just sort of the body of work. And I noticed in looking at your website that you have already garnished a certain amount of lifetime achievement awards. So how many lifetimes is that? Is it three lifetime achievement awards or how many lives have you lived? <laughs> I, I'm not sure, but I've had a few lifetime achievement awards and I always think, well, is this it? Is it over? What, <laughs> what, what's happened here? You know, but it's so lovely. I'm quite honored when anything like that happens. So it's lovely. Yeah. You do deserve the accolades because you carry a very interesting title that most people don't know that to be a director and a choreographer is a very small group of people that do that. I mean, I can think of about a dozen and most of them are male. Mm -hmm. So for you to break through in a gender bias business and really take the world by storm as a choreographer and a director, it points the arrow to me of your ability to tell stories. Well, I think that's true. I think for all of us in the theater, we are storytellers and different from doing ballets and it's about a specific man, you know, I mean, we, we tell stories and I grew up, my father was a wonderful piano player. So I grew up in a house filled with music, but he also told big fish stories, you know, to this day, I don't know if they were true or not, you know, big turkeys chasing them down the street and things. And I grew up loving stories and part of being in the theater is telling diverse stories. You know, you can tell something that's quite funny, like the producers, or quite romantic, like Crazy Few, or quite profound and important, like uh, the Scottsboro Boys. So it gives you an opportunity to tell stories of different types and, and for different audiences, too. So I feel very fortunate 
that I am a director and choreographer and that I am in the theater. I love it more than anything. And I love creating for the theater. I grew up, you know, listening to music and those stories. And it just seemed a natural fit for me to go down this path. Well, because your father, Charles, was a an appliance salesman <laughs> yes. and this big fish storyteller that you mentioned, do, do you see some, a pattern in some of the characters in Big Fish, which you did, and Music Man, and the producers as sort of these bigger-than-life salesmen being at the center? Oh, yes. He was a bigger-than-life salesman, that's for sure. And he played the piano beautifully. Absolutely. I think that's... He held court, and it was always about telling stories and really getting everyone in the room to to pay attention to these stories. And the stories always had some sort of ending or button, a happy ending. It, it was, you know, he made sure... You know, nothing's worse than being with a storyteller and <laughs> the story peters out at the end and you think, oh my God, I just wasted 15 minutes, you know, so <laughs> yeah. So he really knew how to tell a story. I read the quote that he said, the only thing you really need is a bottle <laughs> of Listerine and a thesaurus and then you could make it. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. That's right. He kept that in his car, a bottle of Listerine and a, a thesaurus. You could rule the world. Yeah, yes. that's hilarious. Well, your attraction to the theater, which so I have an attraction to the theater myself, but I guess I wonder how the theater is a sanctuary for you. The theater has really saved me many, many times in my life. You know, I, I, I've lived my life in highs and lows and not only my, my personal life, but in the theater too, you know, and, and the theater there's nothing like theater people. There's just nothing like them. And, and they are there to pick you up and they are there to <sighs> console you when you're down and they're there to make you laugh. I don't know how people who uh, are not involved in the theater actually get through <laughs> just through the highs and lows of life, you know, because uh, I have really depended on, on my, my theater community to get me through. Yeah, it is quite a family. And I, I guess the word theater, I have, I think in talking to Jason Alexander, we talked about how that actual word, it does represent the people, but it also re represents the project and the story and the audience's response. There's so many magical things about the necessity of theater in our lives from a story to a lifestyle. And I think it's because it's live. It, it's life affirming. You know, you're watching something live. And you're watching somebody breathe and you are with them, the breath of, of their song or the breath of their emotion to have that person in front of you really breathing. That's, of course, what I have missed over these 18 months is live theater. If I if I see someone sing again on Zoom, I'll kill myself. Uh -huh. <laughs> you know, like you you really want to be in the theater and feel the breath of that dancer when that dancer flies through the air. There's nothing like live theater, nothing like it. Yeah, I saw that you directed a show called Photograph 51 that yes. was done on Audible, which was, I assumed, was a, a need to be nimble during the, the pandemic. So what's, yes. tell me what that project was intended to be and then how you managed with the new technology to pull that off. I was hired by the Williamstown Theater Festival to direct Photograph 51. It's a wonderful play. Uh, and it's about Rosalind Franklin, who was a woman who who discovered DNA. And but she happened to do that in a room full of men. So she didn't quite get the just the do. She wasn't noted like the others. So it's, it, it's just a spectacular play and very timely. It happened 
uh, right before the pandemic. And I would have been there for the summer, but we had to cancel. And our wonderful artistic director up there, Mandy Greenfield, went to Audible and asked them about collaborating on the plays that were not able to be done that summer. So it's sort of like the lost plays of the summertime at Williamstown. Audible jumped right in, and I was so pleased that they did. They're a lovely group of people. And yes, it was quite the um, technical learning curve to deal with what that would be, because I, I had two weeks with the actors to rehearse them, and then they gave me three days to record. And of course, we all had to be in a broom closet, with lots of blankets around us, and, and they sent us equipment, amazing equipment in a big box that looked like something from an armored truck. We did it all. And, and in fact, uh, then I worked with the editor and, and it turned out great. I loved it. And I hope there's more opportunity for Audible to do plays. I think it's a great thing. Did you have to cast on Zoom as well? Yes, oh. absolutely. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting, not for singing or dancing, but for acting scenes. In fact, uh, you're quite close to the actors and it's just you and that actor on Zoom. So in, in fact, it actually worked out. And I feel like it, it works out in an odd way on Zoom. That's the only, only part of it. There's a little bit more intimacy, <laughs> though, in seeing their facial expressions. and Yes. Interesting. And I, and I bet they're a little bit more relaxed because they're in their own home. They're not walking into a, a room. You know, let's talk about the normal casting process, because I think people would be fascinated about how you see them. They're out in the waiting room, into this room where there's a few people at a table and they're on display. You know, that puts them in a place where they want it or they're anxious or so this probably takes a little of that away. It does take it away. And in fact, you get to talk actually more deeply about the particular part or the particular character, which seemingly you don't have that much time uh, when someone walks into a room. And someone told me, which I found this interesting when we first all started Zoom, you're never this close to someone's face for a great length of time. But I'm staring at someone's face as I am yours for a great length of time. And normally when you're doing that, you're either yelling and fighting with somebody or you're about to kiss somebody. So that's those two emotions. So when everybody started on Zoom to be that close to someone's face for that length of time and not either kissing them or fighting with them, <laughs> and then you had to get a whole a whole new awkward. It's awkward. You either have a clenched clenched fist or your lips are pursed. I know. Which was what makes it weird when you're having a big group gallery on Zoom is the other thing people aren't used to is being looked at by everyone when you blink, when you eat, when you walk in the back, when you do anything, like you are completely vulnerable to <laughs> any to picking your nose, whatever it is, right? Yes. Oh, of course. Yeah. And what's in your background? What, what books are you reading? What you know? What do you have going on in the back? Yeah, that great illusion of the bookshelf. I like yeah. that. <laughs> Everyone's well read and has beautiful tchotchkes with hobbies they've never done. <laughs> yeah. Like croquet mallet on the shelf or whatever they have. <laughs> Let me take take you all the way back to your youth. You have described more than once you would hear music and you would visualize people dancing. You could see those images, which to me feels like a superpower. <laughs> and luckily you became a director of choreography. I can't think of a, another job where if you were doing that, that would apply as well. What, what age would, did you start to see these scenes, these dance scenes, and these scenarios playing themselves when music would occur? 
at a very young age, I, I would hear music and, and visualize hordes of people dancing through my head, like the Sugar Plum Fairy. But I think because there was so much music in my house, my brother, I had an older brother also that played piano, he played the organ. And also we had, had albums all the time. We were always listening to albums. And at a very young age, I would say five or six, I could even recognize orchestrations and how that how that made emotionally, it, it would make someone feel differently in, in with an orchestration, very young age. But also when a Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers movie would come on in my house, everything stopped and everybody would get the TV tray out and you would watch this movie together. But again, at a very young age, I could recognize when Fred Astaire leapt into the air, so did the whole orchestra. How music and choreography were one and how you, the, the music would heighten the choreography. And to this day, that kind of connection with music and, and dance is very much a part of me. And so when I do hear music, I do visualize it. And so it's not a relaxing entity for, mo- for like most people, but I do put it on, but it, you know, it, it all of a sudden I'll have to stop. <laughs> and my brain, my brain starts to dance. Yeah. Uh, does it happen as well when you are hearing or seeing other projects that are already choreographed? Is that I can imagine that would create some conflict where you're like, "Ooh, this is not what I see." No, that hasn't happened. I, I'm actually a very good audience. I'm able to watch others' choreography and uh, other musicals and cheer them on because I know what it took to get it up there. So I'm a very good audience. I, I don't doubt that. What you're really, really excellent at is creating fluid transitions. And part of that is being a director and a choreographer, which is that you're responsible for staging the play. And the audience may be familiar with the term blocking, which is where the actors move. But also, you've got to move the scenery. You've got to move every piece. And and, and you have to maintain the story action so that it's not like a high school where it goes down for a minute and they roll out a thing on wheels and so you really know how to create urgency with that and maintain story. Uh, and I'm really fascinated by that because it's like you're an air traffic controller. <laughs> well, you know, it, I work very closely with, with the set designer and we want to move the plot forward all the time when we're moving the scenery and the choreography helps to do that. An audience today has a more cinematic eye so they want that story to be told all the time. Gone are the days where you could sing a song about Bill and there was no Bill in the show. And gone are the days where you could sing a song about Bill and then there would be a blackout and then you'd have to wait for the showboat to come on. It, those days are gone. You have to constantly move the story forward and you can do that with choreography. When I do research, I research the decade and the geographical area and I try to infuse that into the dance and the staging. So it's we're always in the essence of the time period and society. And it just will strengthen the character of any actor on the stage. And I imagine in collaboration with the set designer, you are able to deal with mechanics. Right. How fast can this move? Or can this turn around and be something else? Or can we use a revolving stage to get these people on and off, whatever it is to make it flow. And when you're not doing that, I've noticed that you're able to use beats, humor beats, or some sort of other acting moment to transition. 
that whimsy and wit that you use seems to be uh, another trick in your toolkit. Well, it's if if you have a particular difficult set change, you know, say upstage right, then uh, downstage left, you want to put someone's hair on fire so no one's watching <laughs> upstage right. <laughs> so if you can find something humorous, if it's appropriate for the piece to put downstage left, the whole, well, you know, 1,500 people will watch that. And they'll never see what happened upstage. Yeah, you good, know. good misdirection. You should know that, like you're a, a magician. So. Yes, any misdirection <laughs> helps. And, yes. and I'm going to clarify for the audience who may not all be theater folks, the upstage and downstage, which is, uh, you know, in the old days when there used to be a rake on the stage, which meant that it was coming downhill, upstage was at the back and downstage was at the front. And I know that the first times you put an actor on stage and you say, go stage right or go stage left, if they don't know, you know how new they are. <laughs> That's correct. Right? Because That's they correct. struggle. They're, they're thinking, oh, is that right field, left field, like baseball? Or is that <laughs> facing the audience? They, it, we do have some specific terms, uh, some right. that I find quite humorous. You might want to tell people what a sits probe is. A sits probe, yes. That's uh, when the orchestra gets together before we're about to open a show. It's usually when their set's getting into the theater and all the actors come together and you go to a big room and it's the first time you hear the orchestrations. And it's some people say it's the greatest time of all because you're hearing the orchestra uh, and because you're, you're hearing music that you've only heard on a piano for five weeks. And uh, it's thrilling, but it's it's called a, a zitz probe because people sit around and listen or they'll step up to a microphone and sing their song and then go back and sit down. It's a, a German term. Yes, but it, but not to be mistaken with the sitz bath, which, <laughs> you know, when you hear it you and have never heard it before, you're like, what are they going to do together? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't even know which one of your projects I want to dive into first because you have so many really interesting ones. Naturally, the goose-stepping Nazi kick lines from the producers comes to mind and that collaboration with Mel because he seems like he would be a tremendously fun guy to work with. It was a great collaboration, I have to say. And Mel was unbelievably respectful and supportive and well, he's so smart. He knew that he was coming into another world, uh, the world of the musical, the musical people, and that we were taking his beloved screenplay and and making it into another animal, if you will. And he was so excited about it. But when you think about it, in all Mel's movies, he takes a nod to the musical theater. He writes um, songs, I'm Tired from Blazing Saddles, or he has, you know, Count Basie band sitting on the on the desert or in, <laughs> out in the West or, you know, or, or, you know, in his original, you know, springtime for Hitler, he wrote and, and uh, high anxiety. So he writes a song for each movie. It was, it was sort of meant to be that he would write a musical because he loves musicals so much. And he took a nod to them in every single film he did. Yeah. And I know he, he had said that it was sort of his life's job to make sure that the world laughed at Hitler and I think you get an assist on that. I think you made him, his dream come true in the musical form because it, it existed as a piece before you. That's kind of one of, an interesting property mm -hmm. that it was a movie and then it was a musical mm -hmm. and then it was a movie musical, which you got to direct. Uh, can you maybe talk about the difference for an audience of the stage versus the film? What 
new elements that were added when you were suddenly not restricted by the proscenium and the audience sitting in one place? What 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 developed during that? Well, what what's wonderful about that for comedy is that you can get in for a close up, which you can't do in the theater. You're always in a wide shot. So you have to make, it's almost like your spotlight is your camera. The lighting is so important in the theater to isolate and spot, highlight the main focus that you want the audience to look at, even though there might be other things going on. Whereas in the film, the camera is is your spotlight. The camera is your close-up. And so we were able to move in on some of those funny faces, <laughs> like Nathan and Matthew and Gary Beach and Roger Bart and just you were able to highlight the comedy a bit more in the film. And see the point of view of those actors looking at each other as well. Yes. Yes, of course. Right. Yeah. As opposed to just staging the theater where you need to bring people into view, uh, you're actually able to take the camera somewhere else and get a different angle or look over the shoulder or go down the pants or whatever you need to do at that moment. <laughs> That's right. But, it, you know, the, the material is so strong. You know, Mel, Mel's writing is so strong. And he collaborated with Tom Meehan, who's a wonderful writer. He wrote um, the musical Annie and the musical Hairspray. I mean, he knows what he's doing. And he and Mel did, um, they did Spaceballs together. Ah. So Mel, Mel brought him on when he was writing The Producers. But what was wonderful, uh, it was all, it all took place in my living room, all the writing of all this. And and, uh, you know, we would have bagels and cream cheese and white fish and it would be a spread uh, every time we had a meeting from Zabar's, actually. Yeah. But the thing about Mel is he would turn into these characters when he would want to get a joke or, or do a scene. He would be Max Bialystok or he would become Leo Bloom or he would even become Ula in order to get the joke. You know, he would become all these people. And the minute he would start dancing around the living room in these different characters, you know, all of us, we would all grab a pencil and just write down anything that came out of his mouth, you know, so we would capture it. Yeah. He was such an animated and bigger than life creator and oh, yeah. always going for the laugh. If anybody saw laughter on the 23rd floor sees the character that is represented by him, that he busts into the room. And I saw Mel on Broadway a few years ago doing one of his one night storytelling mm -hmm. things. And the guy was shot out of a cannon. Yeah. He just, you know, so energetic and so vital. No. And, and funny all the time. Funny. Go out to any restaurant and, and, by the end of the meal, he knows every waiter's name. And, you know, he's very gracious the whole time. Our collaboration was wonderful. Did Thomas Meehan work with he and you also on Young Frankenstein? Or was that? Yes, Tom worked on that too. Yes. And in fact, the last thing that we did together before, sadly, Tom passed was we did a new version of Young Frankenstein in London, on London's West End. Mel wanted to do it again. He wanted to go make it smaller, make it more like a vaudeville piece. So we did it because a lot of Mel, the songs in Young Frankenstein have a vaudeville feel to them. It lent itself very well to have a, a rethink, a reimagine it in a smaller way in a, in a vaudeville house. And we did it at the Garrick Theater on the West End. It was a big success. The West End is the Broadway of, of London. Yes. And so much has crossed the seas when they make it over there. They come over here and not as much vice versa as I see, but but Young Frankenstein and some of your other work 
made it over there. Yes. But did you spend time living in London yes. for periods of time? I did. I did. My my late husband, Mike Ockrent, British and uh, a director, and we lived in London and we would, we would go back and forth. I was there for about 13 years, actually. And I've, I've been very lucky to have shows that played in London, like the producers played London, Young Frankenstein, Contact, Crazy Few. And I, I did that production of Oklahoma at the Royal National Theater with Hugh Jackman as Curly. That was an amazing time because when he came out singing, there's a bright golden haze on the meadow, I knew something special was going to happen to this man. I didn't know he was going to become Wolverine after that, but uh, yeah, because I I never forget when I went to see Wolverine and all those uh, nails came out of his hands. I thought, oh my God, that man just did my dream ballet in Oklahoma. You know, (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that amazing? He's a real talent. And oh, I know he's coming. Talent. Yeah. He's coming back to Broadway in The Music Man. He is. Which you had done as well. And that's just a, one of the frothiest musicals <laughs> and so much fun that Meredith Wilson music and how he used the syncopation of the train. And w- was that fun for you as a choreographer to be able to oh, dive yes. into Meredith Wilson's? catalog? Well, well, for me too, that, that was a very special time. That was my very first Broadway show to direct and choreograph. And that was at a time where no, there were no women director choreographers. And the wonderful, wonderful producer, Michael David, gave me a, a break. What was uh, terrific about The Music Man is there is a choreographic arc, because when you first meet them, they're stiff Iowans. They, nobody moves in the town. And then by then by ten o'clock everybody's doing the shapoopy, you know. So <laughs> so Harold Hill infuses rhythm, he infuses music, he infuses dance into the town. So there's a real choreographic arc. So for me, for that to be my first Broadway show to direct and choreograph, it was perfect. It was in my wheelhouse big time. And you know, there's a wonderful line in, in the Music Man where Harold Hill says, I always think there's a band, kid. And I think for all of us in the theater, we always think there's a band. And there, there's so many great sequences in there as a choreographer, Madam Librarian sequence where everyone's trying to be quiet and breaking into dance in the library and obviously building up to the big 76 trombones and so forth. But isn't there also some ballet element? There is, yeah, absolutely. For sort of the young lovers, there's uh, balletic element, elements, there's rhythmic elements. And the thing people most remember from that particular production, crazily, is the curtain call. Because I had this idea that, you know, when I read a novel, I wonder what all the people are doing afterwards after I close the book. And after the Music Man script, I thought, well, what is everyone doing? And I thought it would be great if everyone could really play the trombone. <laughs> and so I went to my producer and I said, what if we had a trombone teacher come in every day at four o'clock and it'll either work or it won't. If it works, I'll do a big curtain call with everyone playing the trombone. If it doesn't work, we'll just come out and bow and get off, you know? So he said, yes. And I had a trombone teacher there and every day I would walk past the door and it sounded awful. You know, it was like a moose in there and then another moose. And it just sounded terrible. I thought, this is never going to work. And then and then the next week I walked by and all of a sudden I was hearing music. I was like those mothers in the music man that say, that's my kid. My kid's playing music. And I, I thought of that, of the cast. So when that cast came out, 
they were not only playing the trombone, but they had a great pride uh, and that you could feel it across the footlights that they had accomplished this amazing feat of all playing the trombone, all, the entire company. I love it. It was a, an amazing uh, show to be a part of. That was a amazing story. I have to tell you when you're, because it's, it goes beyond the call of duty, but also as a coach and as a mentor and as a leader, as a director, you're indirectly teaching them what the show is trying to tell them. Yes. Uh, I know that there have been directors and I can't remember who did this. They were doing our town and to kind of give the vibe, they put peanut butter in like the cracks of the kitchen walls and stuff so that the actors could smell the food that had been in the kitchen. Sometimes <laughs> a, a trick like that, which I imagine that a whole show smelled <laughs> yeah. like peanut butter to them. But. I'd be uh, gone after that wall when no one was looking. I love a good a good lick of peanut yeah, butter. Yeah, right, yeah. right. Why are the actors licking the molding? I know right. I did a, a, just an aside story, I did a big full-length ballet for the New York City Ballet called Double Feature, and it was a nod to silent film. I had a little black and white dog, as every silent film does, and he had to come out and kiss the male ballet dancer, the male lead. So what we did was we smeared a peanut butter on the face of Tom Gold, our lead dancer, and that little dog came out and kissed him to death, and the audience went crazy. They had no idea that there was peanut butter all over that dancer's face. I'm going to have to do that to myself on my next date. <laughs> I mean, if it works for little animals, maybe bigger animals will be attracted to me. <laughs> there you go. Now, you mentioned your husband, Mike, and I know that you had collaborations early on, Crazy for You and Big. Mm -hmm. And did you do Christmas Carol together? Yeah, we did Christmas Carol. That ran at Madison Square Garden for 10 years. Yeah. And what was the first project that you worked on together? The first project was Crazy for You which is an amazing Gershwin musical. Roger Horchow was the producer of that, who people might know from Horchow catalogs. And he, uh, when, when he was a little boy in Dallas, Texas, he came down and heard his piano, something, there was his piano in his living room, someone was playing it and he came downstairs and it was George Gershwin. And he never forgot it. And he, he vowed to someday produce a Gershwin musical. He worked with Ken Ludwig, the writer, and they brought in Mike Ockrent. And Mike Ockrent was looking for a choreographer who could do this big Gershwin musical. And I was very lucky that I had And the World Goes Round playing, which was a Candor and Neb retrospective, a lot of comedy. And then I had Liza stepping out at Radio City Music Hall, which is a huge extravaganza. So it was the, kind of the combination of the small comedy off-Broadway show and then the big extravaganza of lies so that Mike Ockren thought, oh, this girl could do a big, splashy Broadway musical. It had, again, everything in it that I could ever wish for. I feel like my whole life was aiming for a crazy few. And it was my first Tony Award. Everything about that was amazing. But I also was, I was able to open up the music as we were speaking before about making the music support your choreography. Yeah. You know, when the dancers jumped in the air, so did the orchestra. And so I was able to play all the tunes in different time signatures and almost to manipulate emotions in a way. Uh, just a quick story, like there's a song called Shall We Dance? And so I would take that melody, but I would I would play it in a fast two if I wanted Bobby to chase Polly, or I, I would play it in a, a soft shoe rhythm if I wanted them to be 
coy with each other. And if I wanted them to fall in love, I would play it in three quarter time. So it's taking that time signature and manipulating it. And that helps you tell your story as well. Oh, that's a really interesting thing to be able to adjust your rhythm and your pace to the design of the scene. Yes. I'm, I'm kind of curious because you probably spend a great deal of time before anybody comes along with the show in preparation. Because even though you might visualize this in your head, you then have to translate it, each sequence and each scene to paper. And then you have to cast folks that you think can athletically handle that or have the stamina to do this show eight shows a week. And once you do that and you go through that process, you then have to teach it to them. You've got a lot of advanced work before anybody comes to work. Well, sure. Yeah, I do a lot of pre-production on the show. And in fact... I feel that I do indeed work out the whole thing before I see the actors, but I don't necessarily share that with them. I work on a number and work on a scene, but when I get the actor in front of me, I, I'm always inspired by actors and I want them to feel part of it. I want them to feel that they're creating. So it's almost like doing that prep is just like building a net for them to fall into in case they do start heading down the wrong path. But I, I work with them together, even though I've worked stuff out. I, you know, because sometimes a, even a dancer will say to me, you know, if you would just let me turn to the left, I would do that much better. And of course, I say, okay, so then I would change the combination completely to go the other way, which then would have a, a domino effect for the <laughs> entire number. But in the end, you want that, that actor or that dancer to almost look like they've made the whole thing up, that it's very natural to them. Also, I imagine that you're sizing up if they have a skill set you're not aware of, if they can do a backflip or if they can <laughs> do the splits or something, that sometimes those assets become a part of your paintbrush. Oh, yes. I, I know the wonderful uh, Katie Hoffman and the producers who played Ula. She was sitting on the desk, Max Bialystok's desk, and I thought, what if she leaned back and, and sang this big note upside down? And so I gently asked her this question, if she could hit this high note upside down on the desk. And she not only hit the high note upside down to get out of that position, she did a back walker over and ended in a split. Now, I didn't see that coming. And then I just went, that's it. <laughs> that's it. And that came out of the actor wanting to even take it farther. That's the thing. It's, it's making sure you know what you're doing so you can make the actor feel comfortable and then they will take you even farther. And you were at one time that dancer. In your early, in Chicago, uh, you were a dancer, <laughs> right? And you were working with Fosse and Verdon. You came into sort of the major leagues with people. Fosse was a director choreographer. <laughs> so you were working with somebody that already was showing you that skill set. What was that experience like? That was a great experience. I, I have to say, when I, I always wanted to direct and choreograph, but I knew I couldn't come to New York and take over. I had to come to New York as a song and dance gal and figure it out. And I was lucky that I could sing and dance, so I was able to work. But it was always to get on the other side of the table. But on that journey, I was cast as the Hunyak in, in the tour of Chicago, which was directed and choreographed by the wonderful Bob Fosse. And Jerry Orbach and Gwen Verdon and Cheetah Rivera were, were in the 
in the piece. And so it was a great learning experience. But what I remember about Fosse, he would motivate every step. And there would be a step where your hands would be flat as if you were taking them back and forth. Your palms are open. And he said, this is this is the Manson family wiping the blood off of their hands. And I thought, okay, well, I... <laughs> That's at least that's a motivation that, you know, a visual that you can think of every time you do that step. But it, it doesn't always work out. But <laughs> you mentioned Jerry Orbach was in that show. It, it sounded like he was teaching an acting class. Yes. For a year, I took a, an acting class from Jerry Orbach and, and it was wonderful. Everybody adored him. He's quite beloved in that cast for sure, but very beloved by the theater community. That's the thing is when, when you're young, it's being open to learn and observe and respect those folks that have achieved so much and learn from that. It, is, it feels a little different today, but it, it is important to know what has come before you. Other folks, you worked with Hal Prince, who's a, a giant in the industry as a director and producer, and you went ahead and Prince of Broadway was the tribute show that you did for him? Yes. Yes. And I, I loved how we became very good friends. And we, we did Don Giovanni together. We did Showboat together. And Prince of Broadway was a retrospective of all of Hal's work. And, and what I admired most about Hal and his career is how many chances he took. He didn't just do entertaining stories. He did stories that the audience would think about after they left, that the audience would learn about something about history or about themselves. And I admire that so much about how, how he would hook onto a story. And I admire it so much that I, I've made it my own sort of philosophy about finding that right story, no matter how dark it is or how light it is, and make it entertaining for an audience to listen. So a show like The Scottsboro Boys is a dark show, but it is very entertaining. And as Fred Ebb said to me once, if you don't make it entertaining, they won't listen. Well, it also was very relevant and a piece of work that needed to be seen. An interesting step for you. And I noticed, I don't know if you've done, have you done straight plays as well as musicals at this point in your career? Yes, I was able to direct a wonderful play written by Coleman Domingo at the Vineyard Theater about two and a half years ago. And uh, it was a beautiful play about a family in Philadelphia. I had met Coleman during the Scottsboro Boys, and we became wonderful friends and, and collaborators, and hopefully uh, will be collaborators forever in the future, too. But uh, I love working on the play, you know, because there is more time to, to really dive into characters. Absolutely. Well, I saw a, a piece of your work recreated recently. A company put the rat-a-tat-tat tap number from Bullets Over Broadway. Oh. <laughs> it was recreated as, as a tribute to Nick Cordero, who starred in Bullets Over Broadway. You worked with him. I mean, it's an, it's an amazing piece of choreography, but it's also great to remember a big talent uh, from Broadway that we lost to complications of, of COVID-19. Can you just maybe talk about that specific <clears throat> sequence and working with Nick on it? Because it was all gangsters in suits with hats, and that tap number sort of reflected that mafia machine gun feel. 
Well, yes, yeah, so that particular number, taint nobody's business if I do. It's a wonderful number that really lends itself to tap dancing. The story in, in the show of Bullets is Nick Cordero plays Cheech, so sort of the head mafioso gangster, and he's trying to tell his partner there, David Shane, about what's important and what's his business. And uh, in doing so, he starts to sing Tate Nobody's Business. And out of the woodwork come all these gangsters. And it's very rare that you get to have a stage just full of men dancing. And so I really seized the opportunity. The tap ended up becoming like machine gun sounds, like very, very fast tapping and athletic and very masculine dance. So it was a great opportunity for me to to have uh, all these men who were really great athletes to tap dance together. And Nick, when he he wasn't actually a dancer when I first uh, started with him, but uh, you know, I drilled it into him. He would uh, every day come in early and, and my associates and I would make sure that he he knew that dance before the end of the day. And and he really wanted to learn, too, because, of course, he had to lead all these real tap dancers. But Nick loved it, and he loved playing that character. Everybody who was a part of that show loved it. And that was a Woody Allen piece that translated from to, to the stage by you. I saw that in New York live and was just impressed by Zach Braff, who I had not seen sing. I thought he was really charming. And I think all of the moments, the funny moments from the movie, but also just the idea that you were able to expand it so much by using dance. And the music in that show was not new lyrics. It was all found music, right? It was all from the era. It was all from the era. I mean, it was very important for Woody Allen to have the music be part of that time and to take the audience back and make sure that those tunes were from the 20s and 30s. And uh, we did have a few new lyrics. Our wonderful arranger, Glenn Kelly, not only opened up the music for dance, but he also changed a few lyrics to help push the plot forward, because that that is very important in a theater piece. In jazz music, it's not always the notes you play, but it's the ones that you don't play. It's the negative space, that value what is the equivalent of that when you're opening up as a choreographer a piece to find a place to put dance in? A good example is when we are talking about set changes, I had to change this, the set. Santa Laquasto is our wonderful set designer. and But I changed that set by doing what we called a gangster ballet. And it was a night in New York, like what happens in New York? So you hear sirens, you you see red lights spinning, you see gangsters running by. You hear people screaming. The women are there like flappers because it was in the 20s. And so all their choreography had steps that we would recognize from Charleston and, and the time of the 20s. And again, the men very masculine in their dance. And that gangster ballet to the tune, Taint a Fit Night Out for Man Nor Beast. And by the end of the number, we had changed the set. So it was practical and it was advancing the environment and I don't know that there's another musical that's used the word taint as many times <laughs> as that one. That's right. <laughs> I know. Always have to check where that apostrophe goes when you're writing that title. <laughs> <laughs> well, you actually you did something that I'm kind of fascinated by too, which is you got caught up in the industrial musical world. 
writing or working or choreographing with folks to customize things. When GE or somebody would do a, a, a one-off, they would be rolling out a new car or a new refrigerator. There's this great documentary, which you're aware of, but probably the listener isn't. In 2018, there was a documentary called Bathtubs Over Broadway. A Letterman writer named Steve Young, his job was to scour through the bargain bins of old vinyl stores to find funny things from the play. And in that mission, he stumbled into these albums that were created for these one-offs. How many of those did you do? When I first moved to the city, there were many industrials for singers and dancers. They they don't exist anymore. They sort of disappeared like the dinosaur. No one quite know what happened to them. But when I first came to the city, that is actually how you made your living by by singing and dancing about the Oldsmobile car or Honeywell computers or MetLife Insurance or and these corporations would have these big conventions and they would hire singers and dancers to right. go and sing and dance about their product. What I had when I when I first started to, I had a dance partner, wonderful dance partner named Jeff Beasy. And we would recreate the famous dance teams like Fred and Ginger or Gene and Judy. So what we would do, we would go to these industrial shows and talk about teamwork. And they would talk about what it takes to be a team. And then Jeff and I would come out and do begin the begin like Eleanor Powell and Fred Astaire. It was something that for, for an artist, you could do four industrial shows a year and be able to live with no problem and be able to do your off-Broadway show, be able to pray for your Broadway show. So they were a big deal. They were really, really a big deal. But for all of us who remember them, it was a a good time. It really was. It it was hard work and it was a lot of fun. And nobody but those businessmen or people who, salespeople who won the incentive trip were there for the rollout, got to see this big, the glorious singing and dancing of the hopeful life of the new insurance policy. <laughs> That's right. Um, one one industrial show I choreographed was for Miller Beer. And so all the dancers were dressed up in these beer cans. And, you know, <laughs> we got dancing. And and if one of them fell over in the beer can, they couldn't get up. And it, it, it would just make me laugh. I would laugh so hard I couldn't help them. We would just all stop and laugh. Uh, so, the, <laughs> uh, you know, but the Miller Beer people loved it. And we had we have funny memories of all those industrial shows. Yeah, and in a strange way, it does teach you how to be a creator because you have to put it in some context. You have to dream things up. I will just send everybody to your website because it's such a great website. And by the way, she's still alive. It looks like she died five years ago and that they did everything they could to get all of her work. But it's your name, uh, right? It's SusanStroman.com. And it's so great. There's so many clips of uh, so many things, including some of that work that's very obscure. Yeah. And it was so much oh. fun for me to oh. go down that. I corridor. don't think if there, if there hadn't been a pandemic, that website wouldn't exist. But, you know, of course, we theater folk were the last to go back. We are the last people to come back. And so for 18 months, it was trying to find how to be creative. But it, in fact, you know, it take more than a pandemic to stop your creative juices. So uh, I actually, I learned how to cook too. I couldn't boil an egg before the pandemic. And now now I could challenge Ina Garten on a, on a meal. <laughs> yeah, I know. So I learned how to cook. I, I, I 
played Beatles songs on my ukulele. Ah. And then I thought, well, let's do um, a website because <laughs> I'm not on social media. But I thought, let me put every all the materials into one spot. And uh, so I had a website master named Tony Howell, very helpful. But uh, it, it ended up being uh, fun, but also emotional to go back yeah. that far. Yeah. You really it, start digging out things, pictures and video, and it, it became quite emotional. Yeah, I imagine it did. I like how you learned to play the ukulele and cook before you would face face <laughs> the monster of the website. Absolutely, absolutely. The, the nature of all people in show business is if there's something fun to do before <laughs> the work. Absolutely. Because yeah, gotta... it was work. It was a good six months of work. I couldn't believe it. I didn't think it would be that much work. <laughs> no, but when you talk about that, it, to me, this interesting thing to talk about for most artists is that there is emotional clutter that we're hanging on to. And yes. when you are working on a new project or you're deep in the process of work, when you're doing the work, you don't have to clean your closet or get rid of the stuff in your garage. Right which right. sometimes is baggage. Sometimes it is actually keeping you from something new. So I, I, in many ways, look at pandemic blessings for, I'm writing a book, which I have mentioned to someone else on this podcast, but I dedicated to the pandemic, which gave me the time. It took, it took away all everything, including family Thanksgiving, and said, you now have no more excuses not to write this book. Yeah. For as evil yeah. and awkward as the pandemic is, many more people know how to make sourdough bread and pickle <laughs> make jam or something. It's true. Of all the places, you have worked at Rady City Music Hall, Carnegie Hall, Madison Square Garden, all the theaters on Broadway, Schubert, Gershwin, Richard Rodgers, all of that. Do you have a favorite or a home base or a place that you always look forward to returning? I love Lincoln Center. I was able to create a show there called Contact, which ran for a little over th three years, about three and a half years. And Andre Bishop, the artistic director there, gave me great freedom in creating this piece. And, and that piece was really just based on a vision of a girl in a yellow dress. So that wasn't based on a book or a story or a novel, movie. It was just on me being at a club at one in the morning and seeing this girl in a yellow dress where everybody else is dressed in black. And, and I remembered that image. And when Andre Bishop said, if you have an idea, I'll help you develop it, which is like music to my ears. You never hear that from a producer, you know, producers handing you some old script. But it was thrilling to be able to create a piece from scratch. It's just based on a visual. And my collaborator, John Weidman, and I got together and created the story about a girl in a yellow dress. And it ended up playing for, you know, a very long time at Lincoln Center. So I think of all the theaters there, that one always brings back. When I go to see another show there, I immediately take myself back to what it was like to create that piece up at Lincoln Center. It's a beautiful piece. It's a triptych of three dance segments. Um, and that's where, in looking at that on your website, I noticed that in every part of that dance, you are telling a story. There's a moment where a guy who looks like he's about to kill himself or at the end of his life is wanting to dance with this woman, but is being sort of kept from her and so forth. There's, there's not a moment in there that I don't think is story worthy, which in many things that you see in dance, sometimes it's because somebody can do a front roll, they throw it in. 
this is a silent movie. Yeah. I'm watching. I mean, I don't know if there's, is there dialogue in that show at all? There, There is dialogue. Yeah, there is, but a small amount of dialogue, but it is mostly told through dance. And it is about making contact, how important it is to make contact. And the kind of idea how in, in New York, you fight to live on top of one another, but you never connect with anyone. In, in contact, it's the three stories. The first one is based on the Fragonard painting called The Swing. And it's about a girl on a swing and there are two gentlemen in the garden with her. And at the end, you realize they have no problem making contact whatsoever, all three of them. But it's on a, a superficial level. And the second piece, it takes place in the 50s restaurant where um, a woman is married to an abusive husband mm. and she's in a relationship, but they can't make contact. And she fantasizes every time he goes to the buffet bar and uh, she ends up dancing with the head mm. waiter and such. And uh, so she's in a relationship, but can't make contact. And then the third one about the girl in the yellow dress is about a man that if he doesn't make contact that night, he will die. And just how important it is. You know, the show won the Tony Award and Boyd Gaines won the Tony Award and Karen Zimba won the Tony Award. So it was quite extraordinary for what is really a full danced evening to be hailed as it was. It was really an amazing time. Well, no more powerful reminder of how important contact is now that we are six feet apart. And (laughs) there was a period of time where the hugs were off the table and, and smiles were masked. There's so many areas that I could talk to you even longer about what it's like to go through a tech week, which is warfare for everybody <laughs> in the theater. But I, I feel like we're going to drop the curtain here. You're a joy to talk to. I know that that is one of your pursuits, is joy and sharing it with others. Uh, and I'm so grateful that you uh, invested the time today to do that with us. Thank you so much. I loved it. I loved it. They were very good questions, Pat. Thank you so much. Oh, well, thank you. I don't really <laughs> write questions, but I, I do love watching and reading and finding things out about people. Because to me, this is a moment at a party at a mixer where somebody says, you like theater. My friend Susan likes theater. (laughs) Well, you guys should meet. And at that moment, sometimes you just drift away and you're the two people at the kitchen counter over the hummus and everybody else is gone. I just am grateful that I wasn't boring. Uh, (laughs) Not at all. It was great fun. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe and you will always have an invitation to join us for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is a production of Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas, under Wizbang producer Amanda Rosenberg, with editing by the surgeon of sound, Casey Franco. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp, with additional production support and technical wizardry from Delilah Lovejoy, Tony Deo, Tucker Hazel, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's on Facebook or visiting our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. That's right. It's dot fun because dot com is not fun. Cheers. Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghostly stage, a circus of uncertainty. Your call.